Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to another fun-filled episode of Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General Podcast. I am Al, and speaking of things that are fun-filled, how are you doing, Chad? Well, I guess I'm being fun-filled tonight. It'll be good. It'll be fun. It'll be educational, maybe? Yes. Uh, we were actually talking a little bit about this before we started, and I have to forewarn you guys, we're going to start getting a little educational near the end, but before we get to the education stuff, let's start off with a brief introduction to today's topic, and this episode is about stealing inspiration from various media sources that you can use in your campaign. Maybe some of it might be good for just an adventure. Maybe some of it might be good for just like a section of your campaign, or maybe you could base your entire campaign around some of these ideas. And I do have to confess before we start out, I stole the idea for this podcast from another podcast. Uh, so let's get that out of the way. Uh, many of you probably have heard me mention my friend Dan from the Radio Free Borderlands podcast. And he's been on my show numerous times. We're good friends. We've known each other for many, many years. And He's done a couple of episodes on his podcast called Cinema Theft, and I helped him with the second one he did, but essentially we decided, okay, let's talk about some movies that we've seen, and let's think of some ways that we can incorporate ideas from these movies into a role-playing game campaign. So uh, if you're listening, Dan, um, sorry I'm stealing your idea, but I'm giving you credit there, so I'm that's not too bad, right? I, I think it's perfectly fine. I mean, especially <laughs> when you consider the topic. Yes, exactly. We're talking about stealing things. And yes, we sometimes we can find inspiration in many different places. So that is today's show. We're going to talk about some, you know, m- movies and books and video games that you might uh, borrow some inspiration from for your campaign. And the thing I like about this type of topic is this is one that, you know, we could approach again in a later date because let's, let's face it. There's, it would be impossible to cover all the movies and books and stuff we've seen in just even one episode. Well, at least when we talk about things that we might draw inspiration from. Right. I mean, and, and, and even when I was putting together the, the ones I wanted to talk about today, I'm like, I mean, we could have easily jumped to, you know, the Lord of the Rings, the the Star Wars, the, um, you know, the D&D type movies that are out there already. And I don't know exactly what you got lined up for this, but I didn't do that with any of my choices. So, yeah, and that's some of the things that I tried to avoid, too, because we all know that Lord of the Rings makes great inspiration for a campaign because, you know, you've got a lot of your fantasy elements, you've got elves, you've got wizards, you've got dwarves and dragons and short little hobbit people. So you definitely got a lot of D&D elements in there. And I mean, when uh, Dan and I did it, his uh, Cinema Theft episode, I did talk a little bit about Star Wars because I'm a Star Wars fan. And I think there are some things there that are pretty cool that you could use in a campaign. So... Uh, if you are interested in checking those episodes out, uh, go to Radio Free Borderlands, which is available on iTunes, and also he does it through Libsyn.com. So go to Libsyn.com, search for Radio Free Borderlands. Um, the cinema theft I helped him with was 
oh boy, I'm wanting to say like maybe a month or so ago. Uh, and then episode, the first episode 93 or 94. Yeah. Somewhere around there. And the, the first cinema theft, you gotta, you gotta go back a ways for that one. That was, I wasn't there on that particular episode and it was, I'm wanting to say maybe about 40 episodes earlier. It's back there. So on to today's episode though. And idea. Yes. <laughs> so let's talk about some sources that we would steal inspiration from when we are planning a D&D campaign, or I suppose you could really use these for any type of campaign as well, other than just now, Dungeons and Dragons. You, I, I, I'm glad you said that, because I did not choose mine all based on D&D campaigns either. Okay, maybe, that's fine, because there's tons of information out there on how to run a Dungeons and Dragons campaign. Yeah, you I mean, know. I think we talked about this at one other time, I where I told you I blatantly stole the start of an online campaign that I was listening to, where there were, you know, people, they get arrested, they end up in this dungeon, and there's people hanging from meat hooks. <laughs> so, I mean, you can find inspiration anywhere. Yep, and so without further ado, let's talk about some places that we think you could probably get some good inspiration and some good campaign fodder from. So, the first thing I would like to talk about is, well, it's actually two movies, Specifically the first one, National Treasure with Nicolas Cage. And there was also National Treasure 2, Book of Secrets. I really enjoyed both of those movies. I have to say, I I think I liked the first one a little bit better. Now, have you seen the National Treasure movies? I have. I've seen them both, and I have to to disagree with you slightly. I actually enjoyed the second one more because I enjoy that the little bit more darkness to it, the little bit more of there's a secret here that needs to be found. Mm-hmm. And even though they had those elements in the first movie, I thought it was played better in the second movie. Okay. But fair enough. And hey, as I said, I enjoyed both of them. It's just, I liked the first one a little bit better. So for those of you who maybe you haven't seen national treasure, here's the plot of the movie. Nicholas Cage plays Benjamin Franklin Gates. I think that's his name. Um, but He's part of a, a family that's been in America since colonial times. And his grandfather was telling him stories about how they were, uh, you know, they were always searching for the treasure of the Knights Templar. Now, it's been a while since I've seen this movie, so I might have some of the small details wrong. But what happens is, now, uh, Benjamin's father is pretty skeptical about this whole thing and it goes a little bit into like you know the illuminati new world order and nicholas cage's character hooks up with i forgot the name of the character but he was played by sean bean and they're working together to try to find the lost uh the lost treasure of the templars because supposedly the treasure was taken from europe and it was hidden in the united states so one of the big parts of this movie that, you know, I think is really good for a campaign is there's a lot of use of symbols and analyzing symbols and learning about historical facts. But what happens is Nicolas Cage's character and Sean Bean's character, they have a disagreement at the beginning and, well, basically Sean Bean and his henchmen try to kill Nicolas Cage and his sidekick character who... I can't remember the name of the actor who plays him. Um, yeah, you got me on that. I, 
I know exactly who you're talking about, but it's been a while for me too. Yeah, I think his first name was Josh. Uh, something, but yeah. I, anyways, I I'm sure. Well, I've got my ha- computer here with the handy dandy internet, the source of all knowledge. So I'm already, I'm already ahead of you. Okay, so yeah, this is bothering me. I can't remember the names because they said Nicholas Cage and uh, Nicholas Cage and Sean Bean are the characters that I remember from that. So, yep, his sidekick was played by Justin Bartha. And played his name was Riley Poole. Okay, yeah, Justin. Okay, not Josh. Justin. Don't know where I got Josh, but <laughs> anyways. So, um, the so they they split up because Sean Bean's character tries to kill them, and I forgot exactly what the disagreement was, but I think it was based along the lines that Nicolas Cage's character wanted to find the treasure for you know historical. Uh, significance, whereas, you know, to make sure it goes to like the museums and such. And Sean Bean's character wanted to do it for more for money. Oh, now I remember because a lot of the clues were said to be written on the back of the Declaration of Independence. Correct. Obviously, a very important document in American history. So they had to, you know, of course, they got to try to figure out how are they going to steal the you know, steal the Declaration of Independence. Right. And another main character in this is Harvey Cattell, who plays a, was it an FBI or CIA? I think it was FBI agent. Yeah, it's an FBI agent. Yep. So through most of the movie, they're they're traveling to different parts in the, I think most of it takes place in the New England area. So around Washington, D.C. and... I'm trying to think of some of the other places. It's just been a while since I've uh, read them, since I've seen the movie. But eventually, what happens is they do find this huge vault of treasure that has been, you know, stored and and kept safe by the the Knights Templar. And of course, Sean Bean's character and his henchmen they. You know, they get caught and they get sent to prison. And I have to say, I love the end of the movie because Ben and uh, his love interest in that, you know, they're outside this mansion. They were talking about his historical and uh, Riley was like, he was upset that, you know, they only took a small portion of the of the, the finder's fee for it. And then he jumps into like this big fancy sports car and drives yeah. off. He's like, we could have had more. <laughs> yeah. in his Lambo. Yep. And you know, so like, uh, earlier on, like Nicholas Cage's character and Harvey Cattell's character, they're talking about, okay, now that they found the treasure, how, okay, it, it needs to be, you know, cause it was supposed to be too great for one, nation to have so they're talking about how they're going to spread it out between all these different important museums so one of the things i think would be really cool about this integrating this into a campaign is really it there's not there wouldn't be a lot of emphasis on combat in this type of campaign now you certainly could um but the actual movie itself there was very little violence in it i think one of uh, Sean Bean's henchman dies, but other than that, like I said, very little actual violence in the movie. Well, except they blow up that ship. <laughs> okay, it has been. I don't remember that. It's been. Oh, oh yeah, they're talking about the ship at the beginning, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that was a old ship that was 
trapped in the ice somewhere. So well, I know, but they were trying to. He was that's that was the first attempt they had to kill these guys, and it obviously didn't work. But so that that is true. But but yeah, there there would definitely be a lot less fighting than a standard campaign. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think this is good. This is a good idea for a campaign because you could really just as easily integrate this in a modern day type campaign as you could in uh, like a fantasy type setting. So if you were going to integrate this into a fantasy setting, how would you go about doing it? Well, I mean, easily enough, you would have, at least the way I played in my head is you would have the bad guy who nobody knows is the bad guy in the beginning. You know, obviously he's going to be the guy that hires the group. He's going to be the guy that sets them upon their quest. And then in the end, you're going to find out whether they succeed in the quest and bring it back to him and find out that way that he's the bad guy. Or they don't succeed in their quest because he gets, you know, he, he ends up being too impatient or doesn't like the things that the cat group is doing and, you know, kind of outs himself as the bad guy. So you think you could do a nice little plot twist, like maybe at the start you've got this king or this noble who hires these adventurers to go find this treasure, and in the end you find out that he's going to try to backstab the characters? Right. Either he's he's going to backstab the characters, or as they're, as the characters are trying to complete this quest or this plot point, everything kind of leads back to this guy as being the guy that they're trying to you know, keep everything away from. Yep. And I think another way you could really integrate this, and this is what I loved about Sean Bean's character in the movie. Uh, Nicholas Cage was saying that uh, his character, he had almost limitless resources and he was really smart. And it always seemed that he was always just a half a step behind them. So I think that could bring some good plot points to the campaign that, you know, you're, you've got this rival that you're trying to work against and there may even be times when you're required to work with him. And, you know, again, you've got this, he's extremely wealthy, he's well-connected, but again, he's very intelligent. So even though you might have most of the clues, he's always just a step or two behind you. So, right. Right. So that's one of the reasons I could really think, have a lot of fun with this in a campaign. And, as I said, it would be really fun because it would focus a lot on detective work and mm-hmm. problem solving as opposed to, you know, let's go run around and, and kill a bunch of things. Well, you know, and, and you throw a different skin on it. And by skin, I mean a different a different rule set on it. I mean, there are rule sets out there that are made for exactly this kind of an adventure. You look at your stuff like Trail of Cthulhu, which... Is kind of like Call of a Cthulhu, excuse me, Call of Cthulhu, but it's more. It, it focuses even more on the problem-solving aspects of of the time. So you could easily set this in the 1920s. You know what's kind of scary? I was actually thinking of uh, of talking about that same game, Trail of Cthulhu. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, I've never played it. I've heard about it. Um, so I, again, I've heard that it is uh, very much focused on investigations so yeah it's a it's a gumshoe they call it a gumshoe uh, engine and 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 that's what it is i mean it's just like you're a gumshoe in the 20s that's exactly how it's written that's exactly how it plays i've played it and i've run it i have played it more successfully than i have run it to this point (laughs) 
But, you know, it's it's one of those games that it's really fun to get into because yeah, you might see the you might see the scary guy or you might run into somebody, but it's really not about that. You know, and for someone like me, I love the aspect of role playing versus rolling dice and playing, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you could put that skin on it. You could do, like, a, a D20 Modern skin on it. You could throw it into Shadowrun. You could throw it into... I mean, there's just so many skins out there that you could put this sort of a idea into, which is which is why when you told me this this movie before we started, I was like, oh, why didn't I think of that one? <laughs> yeah, and... I, I think you hit the nail on the head there. You could easily integrate this whole idea of trying to find this treasure, but you know, using it with you know, doing problem solving and clue finding over a lot of combat. And I mean, really, you look at some of it; it could it could kind of fit well into like a dungeon crawl type setting, because usually, at least in like a classic old school dungeon crawl, you're always going to have to be on the lookout for traps. Yep. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So what about, what's an idea you have? So if you are thinking of like a movie or a book or something that you can steal inspiration for your campaign, what's one place that you would go for some inspiration? You know, when I was, when I was sitting down thinking about this and um, going through movies I've watched recently or, and when I say recently, I mean probably within the last 10 years, you know, and I'm thinking... And like I said, first thing that comes to your mind is Lord of the Rings or, you know, the Avenger movies or, you know, all these movies. And I'm like, no, no, no. I'm like, those are the obvious ones. We got to go. We got to go beyond that. So the first one I came up with, um, and I have to preface this with saying I am not a 13-year-old teenage girl, (laughs) but The Hunger Games. Hmm. So the whole premise of The Hunger Games is that, um, and I forget the name of the world, but it's basically the United States. Pan future. Panem. Panem, that's it. Panem. Okay, yep. thank you. Panem, and it's been split into thirteen districts. Even though you don't really know about the thirteenth district till the I think it's the second book or this you know. So we're not gonna talk about the thirteenth district at this point. So you're split into twelve twelve districts, and every year on the anniversary of Panem getting freedom from you know, war and struggle and strife and all this, they do something called the Hunger Games. Yeah, actually, wasn't it the capital that pretty much united all of the the nations of the districts of Panem? Right, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you're right. Um, so anyway, on this on this anniversary, because of all the brutality and everything that had happened to make this Panem what it is today. They have these Hunger Games, which is where two people from each district, except District 1, which is the capital, send two people into the Hunger Games arena. And it's a fight to the death. You fight until there's one person standing, um, and the other 23 people die as tribute to this forgotten time, or this old time. Now, the first movie, and... I forget the age. I think it's 13, anywhere from 13 to 18, you're eligible for the draft. I think um, it's even younger. I mean, wasn't it even like 10 or 11? Because maybe it, Yeah, maybe it was 10, now that I think about it, because... Rue. Um, remember, there was that young girl, Rue. She looked like yeah, she was Rue maybe was, 11 or 12. Yeah, Rue was pretty young. So, um, and 
it's it's a draft. And each year that you're not drafted, your name goes in there a second time. So when you're young, the chances of you getting drawn are pretty slim. But if you're still around when you're 18, you've now got, you know, you've got eight, your name's in there eight times in your district. So they go on, they go into this, well, Kat Ness's, uh, little sister who's 11, maybe something like that gets drawn. Yeah. It was her. I remember that it was her first year. Primrose. Right. Primrose. Primrose gets drawn and Katniss can't stand the idea of her sister going off and dying. So she makes herself what they call tribute to take her place. And that's how she gets into the hunger games. And then it's a, it's a, it's a trial and error kind of thing. They go in and they have certain skills that they test you on. It turns into this big betting thing in the Capitol and you get rated on a certain level and, She's from District 12, which is always, you know, they're always the lowest rated people because the further you get out from the capital, the less resources you have. Yep. So she gets in there and she gets rated really high. And so she gets backing and she gets money and this kind of stuff. And they go into the arena and people start dying. And um, it gets down to the point where I think there's four left or something Three. like that. Three left. And they just said that this time only, because it's the 75th anniversary, if two people left from the same district at the end, they both win. So, in the end, it's Katniss and, um, oh, what is his name? What's that? It's like Peta. Peta. Peta or Petra? Peta. Let me check. So, Peta and Katniss are left. They both win. Now, it goes on. There's two more movies. Um, I'm not going to go into detail about those, um, just because compared to the first one, I think those two really kind of missed the mark. I read the book series. The book series, all three of them were very good. I don't know if you've read it, Al. I have not. So do you fall along the camp of the books are better than the movie? In this case, yes. Well, actually, in most cases, yeah, I usually do. (laughs) But in this case, definitely. The books are much better than the movies, especially the... Two and three. The first one, I think they did a very good job with. But, I mean, there's only so much you can change print into. I mean, you know, you have to take liberties and that kind of stuff. But I think they did a very good job as far as that goes. Now, the way I look at this one, again, this is one you can put into just about any skin, which is one of the reasons I picked it. But I look at this as more of a, of a solo campaign. Have you ever run one of those for somebody? I never have had to. Well... I kind of, I mean, I remember I did have one campaign where I just had one player for a while, but I, it wasn't just her character. I had other NPCs that I was going along with her. It just, it took a while before I got other people to join in. Okay. Yeah. Well, I've done it in the past where I've, I've had people are like, I want a game and nobody else can game. And I'm like, you know what? I've got this idea. It'll work really good for a single player. And I think you could do that with this. You could do, you could almost totally emulate the movie, um, obviously with different traps and things, because if the person saw the movie, well, what fun is that? Yeah. But you could have them selected to be in the Hunger Games. You know, you could, they could make their character based on a, you know, a teenager, have them selected in the Hunger Games, and then, you know, let's see how long you can survive, uh, you know, or you could do it almost as a PvP type game, too. Yeah, because. 
I believe because I think you said like if both people were from the same district, they would both win. But right. I believe actually it was there could it was like Highlander. In the end, there could be only one. Where because uh, I remember in the movie, I mean I don't know if they changed this from the book to the movie, but in the movie, uh, Katniss and Peeta were going to commit suicide together rather than kill each other. Because right. and- even if it was from the same district. Again, I'm not sure. That's when they made that rule because they needed to have a winner. Yep. And again, it was kind of like... It's the same in the books. Okay. Yeah, it was kind of their way to give the middle finger to the... To to beat the system. Yes, exactly. Because, again, there's supposed to be only just one. Mm -hmm. And... I, so that's why I think it would be a good idea for, or could it be have potential for a single, a solo campaign where you just maybe have one player. I think that would probably be good for someone though who maybe isn't doesn't care if their character dies or not. Because let's face it, if you're going to stick true to the Hunger Games, there's a, there's a good chance you're going to die. Exactly. So it could yeah. be one, in one of those things like okay. Uh, yeah, you make your character, but, you know, yeah, there's a strong possibility you might die. Well, you know, people that play with me anyway, they know there's a strong possibility. <laughs> <laughs> or well, go insane. Yeah, I think to a lot of game masters out there, it's like, yeah, eventually there's going to get a point, you're going to die. But, yep. yeah, I do like that. I mean, you could even expand upon the other parts of the books where it moves from you know, the Hunger Games to actually trying to take down the, you know, this oppressive regime. Right. Yep. Absolutely. Now, here's a little trivia question for you. Do you know where the author got some of the inspiration from for the Hunger Games? I don't, but I do know that she named Katniss after a, a, uh, a reed in the swamp. Okay. <laughs> well, actually, she... Because I was reading that it's supposed to be a modern retelling of the legend of Theseus and the Minotaur. Because, I mean, I I think with Theseus, a famous hero from Greek mythology, Mm -hmm. most people are are familiar with this whole, okay, he goes into the maze and he kills the Minotaur. But there's actually more to it than that, where... um, I I might be wrong on this, but I believe he was from Athens and they had lost a war with a neighboring city-state. So the king of this neighboring city-state demanded that every year they send 14 tributes, seven men, seven women. And they would go to the, you know, they would go to this this island where they would be forced to fight against the Minotaur. And of course, no one ever makes it. So I believe the legend said that the ship always left with black sails, and if the ship returned back to Athens with black sails, it meant that everyone was dead. And But if it returned with white sails, it meant that, you know, someone survived, so the whole thing was over. But Theseus, he... I don't, I don't remember if he seduced or he just managed to win over the daughter of the king. So she helped him because... See, the Minotaur, it lived in a very complex maze. So she gave Theseus a string that he could use so he could find his way back out of the maze, and she smuggled a sword to him as well. Oh, okay. Um, Also, it was inspired by gladiatorial games and reality television, believe it or not. American Gladiator? 
Nope, just reality television in general. General? Yeah, because, you know, you think about it, you watch... I don't know, have you ever watched a lot of reality TV like Survivor and I, uh, whatever? I don't. I'm not a big fan of that. Uh, when it comes... For me, reality TV is like, um, you know, like... Uh, the 6 pickers. o'clock news? <laughs> like like uh, American Pickers, like Pawn Stars, okay. like, you know, the kind of stuff that's... Well, in my case, usually history-based and, you know, having to do with artifacts of history. Okay. Yeah, and of course there's – maybe we'll explore that topic on a future show someday. But, yeah, reality TV and whether it's good or bad, we're not going to go into that right now. But those are the three main uh, sources of inspiration for uh, the book. Okay. Mythology, specifically The Legend of Theseus. Roman gladiatorial games and reality TV because in the Hunger Games, well, you're pretty much getting to watch young young men and women die live on TV. Yep. So, yep. Okay, so Hunger Games, very uh, interesting setting you could do for a campaign, I think. And again, not just the Hunger Games itself, but again, you've got this whole world to explore where you've got the different districts and, you know, each one specialized in producing different types of resources. So, yeah, some were wealthier than others. And, you know, you could very easily have the players come from District 12, which was, I believe, weren't they the poorest of the... Yeah, they were the coal miners. Yep. So they're very poor and uh, had the, I think they had like, didn't they have like the least technology too or Yep. Yeah, it was in in the, in the book and the way they portrayed it in the movie. It was like they had electric light, but it didn't always work. Yep. Kind of thing, you know. So, moving on. Yeah. My second choice for where you could probably steal some inspiration from. This is actually from a video game. And Final Fantasy 13. Now, okay. some, some listeners might remember several months ago, I did a bargain bin adventure on uh, Final Fantasy 13, and I've actually got a chance to play more into the game. I haven't beaten it yet. I'm maybe about two-thirds or so of the way in it. But it takes place in more of a futuristic-type setting, but I think a lot of it would work pretty well for like a fantasy game. So the basic plot of Final Fantasy XIII is you've got a group of six characters that they've come together, and by fate more or less, and they've all been exposed to something called a lessee, which it's they don't really, I don't know, they're kind of hard to describe exactly what they are, but more or less they're these like powerful beings or entities. And these six characters, each of them is marked with a brand. Now, the government of the floating city that they live in, they live in fear of the Lassie. So if you are marked, that means essentially you're marked for death. So through most of the game, they're just running from these people that are trying to kill them. And of course, they break up into different groups here and there. But, I mean, Final Fantasy XIII... It's one of, some people see it as one of the worst games in the series. One of the big complaints about it is that most of the game is very, very, very linear, where some people compare to just walking down a long hallway where you get to make choices every now and then. But 
that actually is intentional because the they're trying to essentially they've got a fate or a destiny that they can't avoid. They they have to go through with this. So to bring it back to the game, these brands that they have, it does a couple of things. First, it gives them magical powers. However, there's a downside. Each character has what's called a focus. There's a certain task that they have to complete. And if they don't complete it within a certain amount of time, they get transformed into, I think they're pronounced Seath. It's some kind of like basically mindless monster because they failed their focus. And so what these characters are trying to do is they're trying to determine what their focus is so that they can rid themselves of these brands so they don't turn into these mindless monsters. So I think this is a, the ideas you could take from this game, I think it would be better more maybe around the middle of a campaign. I could see it working out like this. Your characters, they're going into a dungeon or you know, the Caverns of Chaos or the Forest of Doom or some other location. Right, right. You know, as adventurers tend to do. And that's where they come in contact with something, whether it's an ancient artifact or it's, you know, a a certain type of spirit or monster, and they get these brands and that's when they, you know, they realize these brands mean that they're going to essentially be hunted down and, you know, marked for death. So they have to try to find a way to remove these brands. But here's something else that would be really cool about the this campaign. Now, in the... Have you ever played any of the Final Fantasy games, Chad? No, I have not. Okay. Well, in many of the Final Fantasy games, you have these things called summons, where... Other games, they, they have different names for them, like Espers or Adeans, but they're these these beings and monsters that you can call to perform an attack against your opponents in combat. Well, each of the characters in Final Fantasy Thirteen has their own Adean that they come into conflict with, and they have to beat the Adean. See, in Final Fantasy, one of the spells that enemies sometimes use on you is called Doom. And it doesn't kill you instantly, but instead it starts a countdown. And when that, if the the battle isn't done by the time that countdown finishes, you die. So when you come into contact with these Adeans, they each uh, that you get this doom spell cast on you. So each battle with the, one of these Adeans is a race against time. You have to find a way to uh, to well, you don't really kill them. Mm-hmm. Um, see, it's been a while since I played the game, but essentially what you have to do is there's certain conditions you have to meet during the battle, and it fills up a gauge. And once this gauge is filled up, then you've conquered that Adean, and you can summon it and use it in battle to help you out. Like, okay. um, So I think that would be an interesting idea where, again, you come into contact with each of these Adeans, and if you beat them, that means you get to summon that Adean maybe like once a day and use it to help you in battle. So some like some of the more common Adeans you see in these Final Fantasy games are like Shiva, Ifrit, 
Uh, Bahamut is another one. Can you imagine what it would be like to call Bahamut to you and command Bahamut? That would be pretty damn cool. Yes. <laughs> so I think that would be an interesting idea because, again, the players have to figure out, okay, what is their focus? What do they have to do so they don't transform into these mindless monsters? You know, it kind of reminds me of, um, and I don't know if you're familiar, I know you're not too familiar with Pathfinder, but in Pathfinder they have a race called Summoners. Okay. And these summoners can summer, summon uh, what they call an Eidolon. And the Eidolon can take whatever form you want to give it. I mean, they do have suggestions, you know, Dragon or... or I um, can't even think of some of the other ones. But anyway, um, so that you... We had a guy, and this is what made me think of it. We had a guy who played a summoner. And he would summon his Eidolon. And... So he would summon his Eidolon, he would throw up a wall of force, and the Eidolon did all the fighting. We never had a fight. And, you know, sounds cool, but when you're playing the game, it gets pretty boring pretty quick. Yeah. (laughs) But, I mean, so that's the kind of thing it kind of reminds me of. Yeah, because I could see... See, and this is one thing I was thinking of doing maybe the next time I'm running a D&D campaign, where usually when you... Uh, summon a monster, you summon the actual monster and it stays there for a number of rounds. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of the Final Fantasy games, Summoner is a specific class. But, I mean, I could see doing something like maybe instead of having it, like let's say a Freet. When you summon an Afrit, the Afrit doesn't stay there for however many rounds. It shows up, it does a fire-based attack on all your enemies and then disappears. And that would count as a spell, one of your spells that you would normally memorize for the day. Right, right. Almost like a summon animal kind of thing, except yeah. you wouldn't be summoning animal, animals. Yes, and in Final Fantasy thirteen, one of the things that you can do is each... A DN has what's called a gestalt mode, where it transforms into a vehicle-like thing. And then, okay. you know, when you're on this vehicle, it gives you other attacks. However... The the way that the game is is designed, you can't just keep summoning your Adean over and over again. Um, it requires a certain number of technique points, and once you, you know, once you lose those technique points, it takes a while to build them back up. So they're the kind of thing that you usually want to save for either boss fights or really tough battles. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So what is your next idea for the uh, someplace else that you would look for inspiration for your campaign? Well, the next one actually goes across several different genres. Um, board game, movie. Um, I believe there are computer-based models of the game that you can play as well. Um, the 19... Well, in my case, when I was thinking about it, it was the uh, 1985 movie Clue. Okay. So now, for people that don't know what Clue is about, Clue is um, there. The main character is played by Tim Curry. It's called he's called uh, Wadsworth, and Wadsworth is a butler for a really rich guy who summons all these people that this really rich guy is uh, is blackmailing, and they're going to figure out how to get rid of this guy or how to get him to stop blackmailing them as a group. Figuring there's more strength in numbers than there are, you know, individually. So they all come together, and they're having dinner, and then Mr. Body shows up. 
And Mr. Body is the guy who's blackmailing them all. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's a mystery movie, but it's really a comedy to, you know, kind of covered up as a mystery movie. Um, so Mr. Body comes in and then early on in the movie, um, they get all the standard things from Clue. They get a candlestick, they get a revolver, they get the rope, they get the wrench, they, you know, all these things. And the lights go out, the gun goes off, Mr. Body is shot, and he's laying dead on the floor. So then they're trying to decide whether or not to call the cops, this, that, and the next thing. Wadsworth takes everybody's weapons away, locks them in a, in a closet, and the night goes on, they're waiting for the cops, and more people just keep dying. Now, none of the main characters are dying, people are showing up, a singing telegram shows up, she gets shot. Um, a, uh, a stranded tourist shows up, he gets bonked on the head and killed. Um, you know, all these different scenarios and it's kind of set up like the board game where it's a, it's a whodunit. And the thing that, um, the one part of this movie that actually I don't think would fit into gaming really is there's three different endings to this movie. Hmm. They're like, you see the first ending of the movie and it's like, you know, so-and-so did it. And I don't remember who it was. And they're like, that's what could have happened. But what about this? And then they show you a second ending. And then they're like, that's what could have happened, but here's what really happened. And then they show you the third ending, which is the supposedly real ending, which is where you find out that Wadsworth was actually the one blackmailing everybody. And that each person, each one of these people had recognized one of these people coming into the house as somebody that they took the opportunity to get rid of. So like just about everybody except Mr. Green has killed somebody, (laughs) including Wadsworth who killed Mr. Body, who was his Butler, strangely enough. Um, And Mr. Green was played by Michael McKeon for um, fans of, uh, uh, this one goes to 11. Uh, What movie? Spinal Tap. Spinal Tap. So this is Spinal Tap. He played the lead singer in that movie. He was also, Lenny of Lenny of Squiggy and the Laverne and Shirley show. Okay. For the people that go way back like us. Um, yeah, you know what other yeah, show so, that Squiggy did the did voice work on? It was a cartoon? No. Oswald. And another one of the people on there, Fred Savage. Okay. Okay, because I remember when my son was younger, he used to watch that show. So I think it probably would have... Because I know your children are older than mine, so it actually came out, probably would have came out uh, probably after your kids would have grown out of that type of cartoon. Right, yeah. But yeah, just that's just what I remember because we were watching that with my wife one day and she was saying, oh, I recognize that voice. That was Squiggy from Laverne and Shirley. Oh, okay. okay. So anyways, go on. So anyway, uh, Michael McKean plays Mr. Green who you find out in the end is actually an FBI agent there to watch all these people until they can move in and, and take Wadsworth. But in the process, he um, ends up arresting everybody. And I think the best line in the whole movie is at the very end, Michael McKean, whose character they all seem to think is gay through the whole movie. The bo- His boss, uh, I'm trying to think of who played his boss. It, it doesn't matter, but the guy who played the, the head CIA guy or FBI guy or whatever comes in. He goes, so what are you going to do now? And he turns and he looks right at the camera and he goes, I'm going to go home and have sex with my wife. <laughs> and that's like the end of the movie. Yeah. So 
you know, it's just one of those little turn points because he he portrayed and everybody thought he was gay through the whole movie because that was his cover story. Okay. Um, so this one, I'm thinking this would be kind of a neat one shot type, you know, one night type thing, like something you would do on like a like a Halloween night. You know, a lot of times I'll get guys together on Halloween night and we'll somebody will run something. And I think this would be a nice, fun one. You know, you could be like, you're all the members of Clue. Here's here's your character sheets. You know, you can pre-make those. And just run them through, a, you know, a house and see how they react. And you can throw whatever you want at them. You can take inspiration from the movie. Or, you know, you can give them all each a secret background they have to read before you start. Okay. And they're like, okay, your your mission in this is to do this. And everybody has a different mission. And whoever can, you know finish their mission without dying wins, you know, where you can actually have a winner in a, <laughs> in a, in a, in a, in a uh, RPG game. Yeah. And I can actually see that working very well, you know, not just necessarily as a one shot game night, but you could even insert that, I think, into a campaign. Like maybe you are uh, the guest of a wealthy noble or, or a king and he, you know, again, he's at this party and people start turning up dead. So, like a dare murder mystery. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so you you know your players have to try to figure out who done it. And one of the things that's cool about Clue, like with just about any long running board game series like Monopoly and Trivial Pursuit, it's been you know put through different skins. Where uh, you were mentioning you used to have the Simpsons Clue. Yes. Well, yeah, it was really neat. You had the little, you know, you had a little Homer statue and a Bart and a Lisa and a Marge and, and, uh, what was the baby's name? Maggie. Maggie. And then you had, um, Mr. Burns. And then you had the fat comic dude, comic book dude. Comic I can't book remember. guy. Yeah. Is that what that was his name, wasn't I, it? I think <laughs> that's what it, that's, they just always refer to him as comic book guy. Yeah, so it was it was a neat little thing, but um, unfortunately, I showed it to my girls when I think they must have been a little too young yet, and then pretty soon statues were missing. Yeah. So, well, a couple years after the release of third edition, Wizards actually made a D and D clue where they used the iconic characters from the the player's handbook, and the different okay. weapons were you know things like a wand of wonder or. Um, a mace, mace of disruption, and of course the manor was stuff like, you know, the wizard's lab and uh, whatnot. So it'd be like, okay, I think it was Ember the Monk with the Vorpal Sword in the Alchemy Labs. So okay, I yeah, think that would have been that would be fun to play. There's the works from a couple of astronomers that. I think could actually make for an interesting campaign setting as opposed to a specific adventure. And I've been thinking of writing this as an actual systemless setting for some time. I just haven't actually gotten around to it. Okay. But this is a question I asked you before the show. So maybe you've had a chance to think about it. Who do you think wrote the first, what most people would probably call the first work of science fiction? Uh, my other thought was Asimov. Okay, so because before you were saying Jules Verne or Isaac Asimov. Yes. Actually, most people would credit Johann Kepler, a German astronomer who lived in the late 1500s to early 1600s, or mid-1600s. 
And I know who Kepler is, but I didn't know he wrote science fiction. Yep, he well, he wrote a story, and because of some of the elements in it, this is where, like I believe Carl Sagan, he considered it one of the first science fiction stories or the first true one. Uh, well, we could probably debate about whether it's science fiction, but to get on with my point here, Johann Kepler, he wrote a book called Somnium. I think that's how it's pronounced. It's The title means the dream. And it was published after he had died. Now, a little bit about Johann Kepler. So, I'm going to warn you guys, we're about to get educational here for a moment. Okay, everybody, deep breath in. Be ready, be prepared, and go out. (laughs) It's learning time. So, we'll learn a little bit about the history of astronomy here. Now, Johann Kepler lived from 1571 to 1630. And as a child, he suffered from, I forgot which plague it was, but he he did get sick. And as a result, he had poor vision and he had, you know, his hands, he had some problems with his hands. He originally wanted to become a minister, but Johann Kepler was, he was, I think some people would consider him a polymath. He was extremely skilled in a number of things including mathematics and geometry, as well as other sciences. He was considered one of the best mathematicians of his day. Now, he also was one of those people who tried to think of a plausible mathematic solution to explain this, the Earth-centered universe. However, he couldn't get it to work out. Now, this is around the time when... Now, just just to go back a little bit, these aren't the first people who proposed that the Earth was not the center of the universe. It's just that for the longest time, people like to think that we were the center of the universe because it made the Earth seem very important. Mm -hmm. Well, anyways, uh, Johann Kepler, he came to be the assistant of a Danish astronomer named Tycho Brahe. And he lived from 1546 to 1601. They were the perfectly mismatched pair. Because, well, Johann was rather quiet and studious. Tycho Brahe, he was a party animal. He was a wild guy. And if you've ever seen some of the older pictures of of Tycho, his nose looks kind of strange. And that's actually because he had most of his nose cut off in a, in a duel, in a sword fight. Oh, wow. Because remember, this was back in the days where if you had a disagreement with someone, it was perfectly acceptable to settle it with a sword fight. Like I said, he wasn't, didn't always really get along with Kepler from what I understand. Okay. However, they knew that they needed each other because Kepler was one of the best mathematicians of his day and Tycho was one of the best observational astronomers of his time period. And one of the things that they worked on was Mars. You've probably heard the term retrograde motion. Yeah. Okay, so a little Astronomy 101 here, for those who may not be familiar with that term. when People noticed when they would watch the night sky that sometimes the planets would move backwards in their orbit and then start to move forward again. And... This made this kind of threw a monkey wrench into the whole idea of the Earth-centered universe. Everything was supposed to be in perfect circles. 
Mm-hmm. Well, they tried to, I think it was Ptolemy, he tried to explain it by using something called epicycles, where he believed that as the planets were moving around the Earth, they also moved in circles in their orbits. Now, the problem with this epicycle system is it became increasingly more difficult to work with. So the only solution to predict where the planets would be was to create more elaborate systems of epicycles. Now, I remember in my astronomy class I took in college, I don't remember the name of the astronomer who said it, but supposedly he said, had I been there to advise the Almighty at the creation, I would have, I would have suggested something simpler. Now, you might wonder, why did Johann Kepler and why did these astronomers care about predicting where the planets were going to be? Well, that's because it wasn't unusual for some of these astronomers to also be astrologers as well. Oh, here's the rub. Yep, so people actually did take their advice on based on the planets somewhat seriously, or at least some members of society did, so... Like I said, it was very, it was not unusual for astronomers to double as astrologers as well. So Tycho Brahe, like I said, he was a party animal. He essentially drank himself to death. And here's how. He was at a party where he was drinking a lot, but the host was hardly drinking anything. And back in those days, it was considered rude to go relieve yourself before the host of the party did. Okay. So... Uh, it's believed that Tycho died of a burst bladder, which uh, I'm I'm sure is about as I'm I'm sure it's about as painful as it sounds. Yeah, it doesn't sound fun. Yeah, and and again, it was because he wouldn't go to, out to relieve himself because that would have been considered rude. So, okay. um, Johann Kepler, he actually had to uh, fight with well, not fight, but it took some persuading for him to get. Um, Tycho's family to turn all of their results of their studies over to him because they were concerned that um, that Johann Kepler was going to use all of the work and claim all of the credit and not give Tycho any of credit. So anyways, to continue on, now Insomnium, he actually, Kepler actually wrote both himself and Tycho into the story. But the main part of the story is he hears he has this dream about a boy in Iceland and his mother who was a witch. This young boy, uh, you find out that his mother summons demons, which in, instead of spelling demons, they use the more right. arcane spelling, like the D-E-A-M-O-N-S. So yeah. they summon these demons that can take him to the moon. This is where we do see a little bit of science in it, because... Um, they explain how, you know, that these daemons, they can open a pathway between Earth and the moon, but, you know, it's going to be extremely cold, which, of course, we know the moon, when you're not in direct sunlight, it's cold. Plus, they also realize that the air wouldn't be very good up there, which, of course, we know now there is no air on the moon. So they would have to use damp sponges over their mouths to breathe. So it's, it's again, you had this whole idea of the these people that could summon spirits that could take them to other planets. Now, on to the other astronomer, Christian mm-hmm. Eugens, who was a Dutch astronomer who lived from 1629 to 1695. Now, Eugens, he wrote a book which 
I might be mispronouncing it, Cosmotheros. And he, this book he wrote about how he thought that the other planets in our solar system would be inhabited. And he realized that, for example, Mercury would be a lot hotter than the Earth. You know, by this time, he knew that, you know, we knew that Mercury was close to the sun, so it was going to be hot. And, but he argued that life would find a way to develop there. And while we might consider Mercury too hot to sustain life, these, these aliens living on on Mercury, they might realize that Earth and think, okay, that's going to be so far out there. It's going to be so cold that that planet Earth would probably be uninhabited, that nothing could live on that planet because it's probably going to be cold. Right. This is how I think you could take the works of these two and put it into, use it as a basis for a campaign. If you're going to do this campaign, take everything that your teacher taught you in science class about the planets and throw it out the window. Uh, Because I do like his Christian Eugen's idea that yeah, there is going to be life on other planets and it will find a way to develop. Mm -hmm. So I think you could take some of Kepler's ideas where there's these people that can summon these spirits that are capable of, of taking people from one planet to another. But here's another thing I could think you could work into this. Now, today we usually think of alchemy as nonsense. It's something that just belongs in fantasy, right? Mm-hmm. Well, way back to then, Tycho Brahe, he was an alchemist because, again, their whole idea was they were trying to find ways to convert base metals into more precious metals. And Ready to go. Yep. So one thing that you could do, alchemists could actually play a pretty important role in a campaign like this because let's say you are going to take your, your, your people for, or your party from Earth to, let's say, Mars. Mars is going to be a lot colder than the Earth. So you might have to have an alchemist who's capable of brewing potions that you could use to survive on this cold world for a certain amount of time. Yeah, yeah, okay. So you could even use that as a good way to introduce some tension into this campaign. Like, let's say you have these potions that it will let you survive on this other planet, but it only lasts for maybe a day or two. So if it's getting near the end of that time period, you either got to make sure you have another potion or you got to find a way to get off of that planet. Okay, I like where you're going with this, but let me ask you this question. Okay. What skin do you put on this? What system do you run something like this in? Well, if we wanted to go with the time period that Johann Kepler and Christian Eugens lived in, we could do a a Renaissance-type theme. And if you're going to use second edition Dungeons and Dragons, they do have a book called A Mighty Fortress. It's one of their historical reference books. Right, right. And it talks about things like um, like black powder weaponry and the types of weapons that would be in use around that time period. So I think it would probably work best for a Renaissance type period setting. Yeah, you know what? You know what system popped into my head as you were talking about this. What's that? Rollmaster. Rollmaster. More, I've... more specifically, the the Middle Earth portion of Rollmaster. Okay, I've heard of Rollmaster. I've never actually played the game though. It's the it's the game of of of, of rolling dice. 
it had so many different um, types of dice rolls. Yeah, no, they're all they're all percentile, but they have so many different things that you have to look through. Like, okay, just just to give you a quick background, I'm playing a role master game right now. I'm playing it, and I'm not running it. I would never run role master because the amount of rules in role master is mind boggling, insane. <laughs> yes. So let's say I want to hit something. All right. So I go and I find my my. My skill, whatever it might be, that my current character is a martial artist, so I find the martial arts, whether I want to do a punch, I want to do a sweep, I want to do a special maneuver, whatever it is. The Chuck Norris roundhouse kick of destruction. Exactly. So I find that and I go, okay, I get a bonus of 35%, let's say. Okay? So I roll my percentile, and I add 35% to it. Now, the nice thing about this system is if you roll 96, 97, 98, 99, or 100 on your percentile, it explodes. You get to roll again and add. (laughs) Okay? But let's say I don't do that. Let's just say I roll a 60. So I have a 60 and a 35, so now I have 95. Now, the DM goes, okay, you did a sweep kick, so I'm going to go to that chart. All right, and you got 95. Okay, I'm going to go to that number, and I'm going to look across and go, okay, you did a sweep kick. Now, that gives you, um, like, let's say a 3C, okay? So you do three points of damage with a C critical. So he flips to another chart. (laughs) And he goes, okay, roll percentile. So you roll percentile again. You don't add anything to it. He looks on the C critical chart. He goes, okay, so you did three points of damage, and as you swept his leg, you broke his knee, okay? That's how many layers this 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 system has. Now, the guy who's running it for me, a buddy of mine that's running it, he does an awesome job. He takes a lot of that pain and hard work away from us, the players, and does it himself. And he knows the system so well that it's really easy for him to do it. You know, but- Chad, those couple <laughs> of minutes you just took explaining how Rollmaster works has yes. given me a headache. <laughs> Exactly. My head is spinning. And, and it gets and that's that's just a very basic explanation. So though it can be a fun game and it would work perfect for the kind of thing you're saying, I would never recommend anybody play it. <laughs> but yeah, I think for that type of campaign it probably would be best to do something that incorporates magic because I could see that working in like a a renaissance type setting where there wasn't necessarily this belief in magic, but people did believe that it was possible to turn light into gold and things like that. So science was magic, you know? Well, and I mean, what didn't they say that in one of the Thor movies that, or maybe I think there's someone else has said something to the effect of like any significantly advanced form of science is indistinguishable from magic. Yeah, and it truly is, man. I've seen stuff done with science that you go, wow. You know, and if it was 500 years ago and I saw the same thing, I'd be like, you're a magician. You know, black powder. When when the Chinese figured out black powder, everybody thought it was magic. Yep. So, Chad, do you have another idea you would use for inspiration for your campaign or for an adventure or maybe a, uh, an arc in a campaign? Yeah, actually, um, the last one I and that I'm going to talk about is one, it's a movie we just talked about 
maybe five, six, seven episodes ago called The Last Lovecraft. Now, this is, the movie itself is is comedy horror, and we talked about that in yet a different episode. But um, the basic summary of the plot is the last living um, uh, legacy, uh, last living relative of H.P. Lovecraft is contacted by a group of, I believe they call themselves the cult. No, they don't call themselves the the, uh, the, they, the Order of Cthulhu. The Order of Cthulhu, and they protect this special amulet, and the other half has been lost to history. Well, then the bad guys come along. They find the other half. They want to get both halves together. They attack the the uh, the good guys. The good guys give the piece of medallion to the last living relative. Uh, hilarity ensues, <laughs> and in the end, good overcomes evil. Um, and they keep the two parts separate for all time, you know, in theory. So that's, I mean, that's a real quick concept or high concept idea of the plot. Um, the way I would use this is, you know, as well as I do, anytime you sit around down around a game table, no matter how well intentioned you are of keeping things serious and keeping them going in a serious way, eventually Bob's in the corner He's going to say something and the whole table is going to bust up into, into humor. Yep. <laughs> and he might not even do it on purpose, but it's going to happen because tension only lasts, is only good for so long, and then people need a release. So a movie like this, though I would place it in a horror-type setting, I would put it in Call of Cthulhu, I would throw it in Shadowrun, or even maybe uh, D20 Modern, I wouldn't do it in a straight-up D&D campaign. I wouldn't do it in, you know, in a, in a game about bunnies and mice. Um, you, you could do something like this as a straight out horror campaign with comedy element in it. I have found that when I run horror campaigns, every night there will be one portion of the night where you have to put a little comedy in it. Because if you don't, it becomes too heavy. And then pretty soon people aren't showing up because, you know, they've got something else. You know, they've been coming every Tuesday night for a year and a half, but now all of a sudden on Tuesday nights they've got something else going on. Mm-hmm. Because it just becomes too much. And the idea, the whole idea of role-playing is, is that release. So if you just build and you build and you build and you put that, that heaviness on somebody, eventually they're going to be, eh, this isn't fun. But you can throw all that heaviness at them as long as you let them laugh for a little bit. So that's how I would do it. I would put it in a horror-type setting with a little bit of comedy element to it. Yeah, and that's I could agree with that because I enjoyed that movie, The the Last Lovecraft, as well. I mean, of course, using comedy in any sort of role-playing game is, you know, that's always going to be kind of tricky because, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I... Sometimes I find humor kind of hard to pull off. Okay. And the other problem with humor is it can get out of hand. Yeah, there is such Real a thing. Quick. Oh, go ahead. Real quick. I mean, like I'm sure you were just going to say there is such a thing as too much comedy around the table. Yes, there is. Especially if you are trying to run a serious campaign. I mm-hmm. mean, I think if you are, some systems it could work in. Like... What was it called? Isn't there a game called Toon, where you were playing cartoon characters? Yes. Um, there's one called Toon. There's one called Bunnies and... Bunnies and Burrows. 
bunnies and burrows, it would probably you. I mean, you could pull something like that off in there, but I think it would be harder in a light-hearted system versus a, a serious system where there's moments of humor versus a you know a game that's set up really to teach your kids how to role play where everything's lighthearted and everybody's nice and you know the only bad guy is is swiper because you know he stole something from from uh the little girl dora the explorer yeah dora with her backpack you know there's there's different levels and and there's different tiers of role players you know you don't want to throw a campaign like this on you know four 13 year olds that are just deciding we want to role play you know because they're still at the age where they all they want to do is they want to be big burly guys and go beat stuff up. Yep. So I think it's it it would of the three I picked I think that would be the trickiest one to run. It would also probably be the trickiest one to play. So if you were going to try something like that, um, you would have to do it with I would think a seasoned group. Yeah, that's true because. I think with whenever you're talking about some anything with humor, you you really do have to know your group because there's nothing wrong with little touches of humor. I mean, right. I remember I had a campaign I was running a while ago where the thief in the party backstabbed an enemy, and just out of nowhere, I said, "Thieves do it better from behind." <laughs> See now, if you say that in a group of thirteen-year-old boys, you're done. It's over. Well, we had mostly adults in this and there. Everyone thought it was funny. I mean, but here's the thing. That's where I'm getting at. But if you do it in a group of teenage boys, you're done. It's over. They're all going to be talking. It's going to be butt jokes the rest of the night. Yeah, and... Do it in a group of seasoned players, and you're going to have five minutes of butt jokes, and then you're going to move on. Yeah, because that's what we did in this particular session. We laughed and chuckled about it for a couple minutes. We moved on. But, I, I mean, it's not like every time the thief in the party backstabbed someone, I didn't go, thieves do it better from behind, because, yeah, that would... That... Because the fourth time you did that, the guy sitting next to you would be like, Al, really? I know what you're saying. After, like, probably about the third or fourth time, some one of my players would be like, you say that one more time, we're going to shank you with a four-sided die. Exactly. You're not going to make it upstairs because you're going to have to walk over a hundred four-siders. Exactly. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, and, um, so what do you think? We beat this one to death yet? Yeah, I think we've beaten this topic to death for now. So I think we're going to close this episode to a close because I know we've been going on for a while and, but I hope we did give you some ideas for some places you might want to go to get inspiration for your current campaign. But let's say someone wants some inspiration for their day-to-day life. That's not necessarily anything having to do with Dungeons & Dragons. Where could they find some of your inspiring words, Chad? Well, it's funny you should ask, Al, because I do have a place where I do just exactly that. Tell us I'm more. Back- there are, um, as of today, actually, I just happened to go out and look at it. As of today, we have 69 posts out there. Not one of them has to do with role-playing. Can you believe it? Well, didn't your latest one, it, it doesn't have to do with Pokemon Go. So It does have to do with Pokemon Go. But using Pokemon Go as a positive influence in getting yourself up off the couch and out walking. All right. So, so my blog, Al, is called Nut Up or Shut Up. And you can find it on the web at... N-U-O-S-U dot blogspot dot com. So, uh, yeah, come check it out. You know, um, our, our 
page hits are starting to pick up now. Finally, uh, we've been doing this for four months. It's me and two other uh, two other authors. So yeah, come check us out. Cool. And of course, you can find me at POIGamestudio.com. You can stop by Facebook and look up Point of Insanity Game Studio on Facebook. You can also look up Point of Insanity Game Studio on YouTube as well if you want to see some of the videos I've made. So with that said, I'd like to thank you all for listening. And again, we hope you found some of the stuff we were talking about informative. And have a good evening or morning or afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are. And happy gaming.